everybody. Good to see y'all. <clears throat> if I haven't met you before, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here along with Brian D. Laws, who was just up a second ago. And we're glad you're here. In fact, so glad that I'd encourage you to check out that welcome card that we have in the bulletin. Well, it's not technically in the bulletin. The QR code to take you to it is in the bulletin. I didn't have one. We ran out of bulletins today, but it's right at the beginning panel where we kind of tell a little bit about the church. That takes you to a place that you can let us know you are here. Uh, you can even ask for prayer and share different prayer requests. You could either just say you want to get together with myself or Brian for coffee sometime and hear more about church or life, whatever it might be. We'd love to meet you through that. Um, and then also, like Brian said, the back table is where um, our sermon note booklets are for any um, students that are staying in for the service. Remember, you get if you do 10 sermon notes, Dutch Brothers gift card, uh, I, I think it's worth it. That's at least my opinion. Even if it means listening to me for the next little bit, I think that's still worth it. We're going to jump right into our text for today, Romans chapter 12. And we're looking at verses 14 through 21. Much like last week, this text is going to have kind of a, a rapid fire barrage of different sort of instructions or commands. But what we're going to do is actually take a close look on some of the commands that kind of have a thematic connection, especially when it comes to loving your enemy. So if you would stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. And if you would follow along with me as I read this out loud for us. Verse 14 starts like this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth in these next few minutes and the meditations of all of our hearts as we consider your word would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, please, we ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys can go ahead and be seated. You'll have to forgive me. I'm going to start this sermon off um, with a, a sobering story, a heavy story. It's about a missionary that 20 years ago, roughly 20 years ago, was martyred for his faith and ministry in India, he and his two sons. His name was Graham Staines. Has anybody heard that name before? He's an Australian missionary in India. And in 1999, he and his two sons were murdered for what they believed about Jesus and their ministry in that country. He had been traveling to kind of an interior part of the country um, to encourage believers that were beginning to pop up 
in these sort of small rural villages in the portion of, of India that he lived in. And because there were just a few, they would have these sort of uh, gatherings where people from all these villages would come together and try to meet um, to encourage one another and just be close since other believers were sort of few and far between. And so Graham and his sons who were on vacation from school at the time, they decided to drive into one of those congregational meetings, so to speak. It was a long way and they stopped uh, outside of a village uh, to spend the night in their car one evening and then finish the rest of the journey the following day. But in the middle of the night, they were awakened to a mob that had been alerted to their presence that surrounded the car and apparently angry because of the conversions to Christianity that were happening in the area. They trapped Graham and his sons inside the car and they set it on fire. And he and his sons were killed. Again, not too long ago, 1999 was the year that that happened. And he wasn't, wasn't a church planner. He wasn't somebody standing out on the, the, the village corners giving out tracts. And that, that would be beautiful if he was, but I'm just trying to give you a picture of what he did. He was a minister to lepers. That, that was his ministry. He had started a, a, basically a, a social network for those with leprosy to get care, to get love, to get compassion. He had done that for 34 years. And he and his two sons were killed because of it. Now, the, the murders, or we would say martyrs, of Graham and his sons, it sent shockwaves throughout the whole country of India. But the biggest shockwave of all was yet to come. It actually happened a few days later when his wife... Gladys was her name. She made her first public comment about what had happened. And most newspapers all over the country ran what she said. And I've got it up for you, here for you on the screen. She wrote this. I have only one message for the people of India. I'm not bitter. Neither am I angry. But I have one great desire that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. And then, and this incredible final statement. Keep in mind, this woman's husband and sons have been burned alive inside a car and she says this, let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. It's reminiscent to me of that story from the Reformation, uh, 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 Nicholas uh, Ridley and um, Hugh Latimer were being burned alive at the stake for their desire to see the church reformed in their country. And Latimer turns to Ridley and he says, take heart, Mr. Ridley, for today we light a candle that the world will never be able to extinguish. Powerful, courageous words in harrowing circumstances. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. And just so you know, it's not lip service. It wasn't her being interviewed by somebody and saying, I don't feel this way, but I better put on a good Christian face just for the show of it. No. This woman stayed in that same area of India, continuing to minister to lepers for 20 years. She and her daughter remained in the same spot, caring for the same people and in this 
bizarre possibility, she very well could have ministered to some of the same people that were part of the mob that killed her husband and her sons. Just a few years ago, I was reading, she was awarded one of the highest honors, I think. Um, I I can't remember if it's the Roman Catholic Church that has this award or just a broader collection of churches, but it's the Mother Teresa Social Justice Award was given to her for her work in India. Years before that, she had been given one of the highest civil honors that the country of India has for caring for their people so well. And it's because she embodied what we read about in this text tonight. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those and do not curse them. Never repay evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's just a kind of a, a, a broad selection of some of the phrases that we read in this text tonight. But I see it all embodied in the way that this woman reacted to a loss that makes my stomach hurt just talking about it. Now... I did not intend to kind of go this direction with the sermon tonight. In fact, most of the days this week when I was working on this, I was kind of thinking about doing something else with this text that we're reading. Uh, The sermon title that you see in your bulletin, even the one up on the screen, it says Impossible Love. That doesn't work anymore. (laughs) That was the sermon title from like four days ago. Uh, Now it doesn't fit so much. Uh, Good title. Maybe I'll preach that maybe next week. I don't know. Um... But really, things sort of changed for me when I began to, to chew on this story. I was exposed to it in another sermon that I was reading, and it just blew me away. And in fact, what blew me away the most was thinking about what God did through the testimony of this woman after her husband and children had died. Like, what happened when she chose to go that route? instead of the route of vengeance. And on one hand, you could say, well, Josh, you told us what happened. The newspaper ran the story. It was really kind of this big shocking thing. Yes, I'm thinking more of what happens spiritually. What happens internally when you choose to follow this teaching seriously? What is God able to do through that? What what does it say about Um, your trust and belief and and who you believe the character of God to truly be. I guess I should have said what you believe the character of God to truly be. What happens when you take this seriously? Because of all that we read tonight and the commands, like not to repay evil with evil and so on and so forth, there is in this text these little snippets of, of God telling you that something really special and unique happens when you choose to do this as opposed to avenge yourself. And that's what got my wheels turning. And that's what I've ended up deciding to share with you tonight and hopefully show you from this text what happens when we do this. I have three things that I want to kind of draw out from these verses that we read that I believe are the things that happen according to this text. When we choose to bless those who persecute us rather than curse them. 
And the first one is this. We pour burning coals on their head. (laughs) Did you notice that in the text? I mean, that's the most straightforward thing. If you want to ask about what happens, well, it says it. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That doesn't sound very good, does it? doesn't sound very loving. What does this mean? Well, one thing I want to say from the outset is just to acknowledge that this is a very, very direct quote. It actually comes from the book of Proverbs. You got, many of you guys might know that. Proverbs 25, this is almost directly stated in, in like a verbatim way. So much so that Paul is, is probably, you know, he's quoting this from memory. Up here on the screen, you'll see it. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. So that is pulled almost directly and said here in Romans. (laughs) We're still at a loss for what it means though, right? That doesn't really help us decode what putting burning coals on someone's head actually is. and, And... in my opinion, the context in Proverbs around it doesn't really help us either. So we still got to figure out what does this mean. And I want to throw out a few options for you guys to see what you think. So option number one is we, we take it as, as literally as possible and we say, hey, dumping burning coals on somebody's head hurts them. It burns them. And so what this means is that somehow, some way, when we repay good, in quotation marks, for evil, when we show hospitality or generosity to our enemy, we're actually hurting them. We're secretly turning the knife somehow and getting back at them. Now, of course, that kind of fits with just the, in a vacuum, pouring coals on someone's head, but it doesn't fit the tone of this passage, right? This passage, all of it has been about showing love rather than vengeance, blessing rather than cursing. And so to all of a sudden get to the end of it and have it be like, oh, and all all that blessing you did was really cursing in disguise. It doesn't really fit. So I don't think option number one is very good. Let's try option number two. This is one that comes up sometimes, some interpreters of this this particular passage will say this, that there's a, there's a future mindset here. And what, what is happening is, is pouring burning coals on someone's head is essentially adding to their judgment on that great and final day where the Lord calls everyone to account. So if you respond to evil with good, if you show generosity, hospitality, love towards your enemy, what you're doing is you're, you're adding to their indictment. You're adding to their guilt. And on that great and final day of the Lord, when he calls all to account, their uh, guilt will be deeper, bigger, because they were in a position to receive care in response to the ugliness that they showed. This one also maybe has a little going for it, but again... I don't think the tone of it is exactly right either. This idea that we're kind of, we're showing good to someone so that they, there's a future day where they're even more guilty than they are now, that doesn't seem to really fit either. 
So I'm going to give you one final option. Spoiler alert, this is the one that I think makes the most sense after I've badmouthed the other two. I think it is like this. Pouring burning coals on someone's head, it shocks them. It alarms them. It throws them off balance in such a way that they begin to reassess what they've done and who they are. They begin to ask questions of why you would ever respond like that. And maybe, just maybe, it gets them to a place where their eyes are open to see the necessity of repentance and faith. When we think about what would happen when coals are poured on somebody's head, (laughs) we think first and foremost of the fact that that would be really painful and awful. And that's true, it would. But maybe think of it more like this. It would be alarming. It would be shocking. It would get your attention. Almost like you're in a deep sleep and somebody takes a big bucket of ice water and just throws it on you to wake you up. Or have you ever been camping and you've been tending to the fire and a little ember floats up and lands like on your collar, on your skin, and all of a sudden you're jumping? It, it gets your attention. It stings you, it burns you, but it also wakes you up. Perhaps that is the gist of pouring coals on someone's head is that it is a response so shocking, so unexpected, so putting them off balance and off kilter, it makes them back up and say, why? Why did I just experience what I did? Why did you not fight me? Why did you not try to seek vengeance when you could? And the answer to that question because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was speaking to a friend this week, and we, this actually came up in another context. It's not identical, but there's a little bit of overlap. He was speaking about a situation where he had someone in his life that came up to him and basically criticized him in a really just rude and clumsy and hurtful way. And after this guy gets done, my friend instead of arguing, instead of fighting back, instead of trying to justify himself, simply said, thank you for that feedback. I really appreciate you taking the time to help show me ways I can improve, ways I can get better and learn. And and the whole tenor of the conversation changed because that was not the response this person was expecting. He was expecting an argument, a fight. Instead, he got a thank you. What's going on here? And all of a sudden, the whole dynamic of the conversation begins to look different. Person begins backpedaling and saying, oh, actually, there's a lot of things that I didn't mention that you've really encouraged me with. Oh, actually, I probably said that a little too hard before. It's more like this. And maybe, just maybe, there's a little bit of that example that shows us a bit of when you give a response that is totally unexpected, it's like those burning coals. It alarms you. It shocks you. It wakes you up to say, this is different than what I thought. This is different than what I've ever experienced. What's going on here? And maybe, just maybe, that's what God's using to soften hearts, to open eyes, and to bring people to a place of repentance and faith in Christ. If you think that's a pipe dream or fantasy that would never happen, you're wrong. It has. 
In fact, the story I started with about Graham and Gladys Stane, it happened in their story. When she writes that statement, and it is put out through newspapers all throughout India, it heaped lots of coals on lots of people's heads, especially those that had participated in that mob. And her testimony years later were that there were many in response to that who said, that opened my eyes. That shook me out of my slumbers in such a way that I began to hear and believe the gospel for the first time. It happens. And I believe that's what's going on with this very odd statement. It shocks us. And by God's grace brings us to repentance. What happens when you choose to take this teaching, bless those who persecute you? What happens when you choose to take it seriously? You pour burning coals in somebody's head. And as awful as that sounds, it actually might be the sweetest thing, the turning point in their life. There's other things, though. I told you I had three, three things that take place when we really embrace the teaching that we find here. The second one I want to share with you is, um, well, let's go to the next slide because I forget exactly how I worded it. Yeah. We declare God's justice. More than that, we declare his sovereignty. What happens when you decide to not take upon yourself vengeance and getting back and getting even is that you are demonstrating to the world that your God is a God of justice and you can trust him to take care of the things that are broken and hostile in this world. What you are declaring when you decide not to take vengeance upon yourself is that your God is a God who is sovereignly in control of all things. And he doesn't need me to fix a bad circumstance. I can trust him to handle it in a just and righteous way. Where this is coming from is verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is another quotation. This one's a little easier to see because it's literally in quotation marks. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Where God has told his people that they can trust that he will be the one that brings justice to bear in their life and in their story. Now, if you have your own Bible with you, you might notice a footnote that tells you that that phrase, leave it to the wrath of God, it can be translated a couple of different ways. And I found this to be helpful, uh, so I'll share it with you now. One way you could translate it is, make room for the wrath of God. Or another way, leave space for the wrath of God. My Josh Lee way of saying it is, step back and have confidence that God is just. And he will make the things right that need to be made right. This, this is why we struggle so much with teaching like this, isn't it? It's because we are so afraid that it means that if we all embody it and take it seriously, it just means that really, really guilty people are just going to walk away scot-free and never pay for their wrongdoings. Never have to answer for what they've done. Whether it's in extreme circumstances, like the mob that killed Graham Staines and his sons, or whether it's just in 
much more casual circumstances, like the person that, uh, I don't know, looked at you funny. You say, how dare they? I need to pay them back with a scowl of my own. Whatever it might be, we, are, we have this God-given sense of justice. It's part of who we are, how he's made of, that we want to see righteousness rewarded and wickedness punished. But teaching like this goes against that. It makes us say, oh, we want to see the guilty pay. And God says, you don't have to take that into your hands. You don't have to do that work. I promise you, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And that if you are willing to make space for my wrath, God says, it will declare to a watching world that you trust me as a God of justice and a God of sovereign control over all things. We see God's justice take place in real time in our, in our day. It's happening all the time. I don't think it's any mistake that the paragraph right after this one that we'll look at in coming weeks is the part of Romans talking about submitting to the human authorities that he puts into our life, into our country, into our state. That's part of the way that he brings his justice to bear. And just a little side note on the story that I told you guys to begin our time the man that was responsible chiefly for inciting that mob that killed Graham Staines and his son, he was prosecuted and is in jail right now, will be for the rest of his life. We see God's justice play out sometimes in our life. But even if we didn't, even if that guy hadn't have gone to jail, we can be assured that there is a great and final day coming where a holy, holy, holy God will hold everyone to account for what they have done. And I'm talking about you and I, too. You realize that? We will stand before the Lord to answer for our lives on that great and final day of judgment. Our only hope as Christians is that we will say, Lord, I am guilty, I am deserving of your wrath, but I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. He's already paid. He's already endured your wrath. He's already paid for my guilt. And yes, on my own I am guilty, but I cling to him in faith. Have mercy, and God will. But for those not in Christ, not submitted to him through faith and obedience, they will have to stand and hear about their life and have to face the wrath of God on their own. Which I don't want for anybody. And yet it's something that God's saying because of that guarantee, because you know that that will happen, you can make space for me. You can trust me to handle this in the way it should be handled. You can demonstrate to the world that the God you serve is a God of justice and truth and control over all things. And just as much as, as Gladys Staines was pouring the burning coals on people's head when she made that statement, I believe just as much she was saying something about the character of her God. 
And I can trust my God to bring justice to bear. I don't have to do it for him. The last thing I want to share with you before our time is done for tonight is, well, it's one that I've had trouble figuring out how best to say a distinct statement around it. It has to do with the weapons we wield as Christians. Let me put it like this. When you choose to take this teaching seriously, when you choose to, to, to bless your persecutors rather than curse them, you are stepping in to the most powerful thing in the world. You are wielding the most powerful weapon, life-changing, world-upending weapon you can imagine. Because when you do this, you are wielding the power of the gospel itself. At its heart, the gospel is a message about how God defeated evil by the means of good. Or to use the, the wording of our last verse, he overcame evil with good. It's all over the accounts of Jesus' life. Jesus, the only begotten son of God, comes into this broken world and he comes to, to fix and restore things that had fallen to the curse. He comes to ransom souls from their bondage to evil and sin. He comes to defeat the devil. He comes to defeat death. All these things that we would mark as evil with a capital E, Christ comes to fight them and defeat them. And here's how he does it. By washing feet. Even the feet of one who would betray him. He does it by healing broken and hurting and wounded people. He does it by offering his life up on the cross to forgive even those who had put him there. Remember those words of Jesus as people stand around mocking him, his disciples run off abandoning him, and he looks out at the people that are actively killing him and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. These were his weapons. He comes to fight evil and he doesn't show up with a, a tank or a rocket launcher. He literally shows up to a gunfight with not even a knife, like a water pistol. But that water pistol, whew, has the power to change the world. Because Following in the footsteps of overcoming evil with good means that you are stepping into the gospel. The thing that makes the gospel so powerful. Oh, and it is. Do you realize that this same power of overcoming evil with good is what took a, a dead and beaten Savior and rose him from the dead on the third day so he is alive and is presently seated at the right hand of the Father ruling over all things. This power, overcoming evil with good, is the same thing that has ransomed millions upon millions of souls throughout the history of the church ever since the resurrection of Jesus and given them freedom and hope and life in Christ. It's the same power that has made the church survive this long. Can you believe 
the church has survived this long. That's got to be the craziest thing. Bunch of knuckleheads like us in the church trying to constantly mess it up. And God says, no, (laughs) through the power of the gospel, I'm sustaining this church now in its third millennium. Holy cow. The weapons we have as Christians are the weapons of the gospel that says, when those people persecute you, bless them instead of curse them. When they pay you evil, repay them with good. When you encounter wickedness, overcome it with good. And I know that we read a text like this and we feel like it is so cowardly and wimpy and just calling us to be doormats that get walked all over. But that's nonsense. This is calling us to fight. This is calling us into a fight. But it's calling us into a fight with the right weapons. Weapons that the world tells us could never win anything, but we know through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's the weapon that can change the world, that can change lives when we're willing to bless instead of curse, when we're willing to repay with good rather than evil. Jesus has already told us that he's taken down the kingdom of the devil. It's a promise. Matthew 16. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You realize gates are defensive, right? So Jesus is saying, he's beating down the gates of hell. We sometimes think the church is the one inside the gates hanging on for dear life as hell beats against us. It's the other way around, Jesus says. I'm going after hell's gates, and they ain't going to stand for very long. But as he invites you into that battle with him, a battle he has promised to win, he says, here's your weapon. Here are your tools. They might look like a water pistol to you. But the reality is, it's the power of the gospel that can turn the world on its head, that can bring revival to a spiritually dead region. That can bring someone who you thought never, ever, ever would believe and trust Jesus to their knees and repentance and hope and faith. That's what this can do. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel. The power of what it looks like to overcome evil, not with evil, but with good. Let me pray for us and then we'll head for the table. Father, I I say these things with fear and trembling. I'm the last person that should get in front of anybody and talk about what it looks like to forgive enemies or bless those who curse me. Please, give us that power of the gospel that we just spoke about to, to do this well. Give us the courage to pick up these weapons for the fight and not other ones. Give us the conviction that when we do this, you use it in powerful ways beyond our imagining. Lord God, we are weak. We are vindictive. We are more concerned about us being treated rightly than we are anything else. Let us release that, God, and take up the mantle of your power and the gospel. 
It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. In just a moment, 